In the beginning, light stretched over the void, and God said, it is good. But over time, it grew broken and dark, disheartened and defiant. And after years of God calling his people back to himself, God was silent for 400 years. But while we were waiting in the dark, heaven was preparing a king, a prince of peace, who would offer us a light out of darkness and into light, out of despair and into hope, out of fear and into peace, out of sorrow and into joy, out of indifference and into love. Light had come, calling us out of the darkness. And in that moment, forever, everything changed. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome. Good to be back with you. Thank you, Pastor Ezra. And uh, good to be with you and be able to gather around the table, the communion table. That's really meaningful. Well, uh, it is the most wonderful time of the year. Is that, is that how you feel about it? Ooh. Wow. That was a little tepid. Uh, okay, okay. Uh, it's going to get better, right? In the coming days, it'll get better. Hey, let's pray, and we're going to talk together about uh, this Advent and hope. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for this moment that you have given us where we can gather in your name, and we can think about who you are and what you've done for us. And as we take in all of the things around Christmas, Lord, help us to be present in it, to be aware what's going on, and what you might be saying to us. And so we give this moment to you now, in your name, amen. Well, there can be no greater anticipation and expectancy than a child on Christmas morning. I remember it myself. Do you remember your Christmas mornings as a child? I would get out of bed long before the sun would come up and I'd wander downstairs and as, we, as I went down into our basement where our Christmas gathering and celebration took place, I could see across the basement family room our Christmas tree. We always got live Christmas trees back in those days. And it had those big bulbs on it. Do you remember those that were popular back in the day? Colorful bulbs and a gaudy amount of tinsel. My mom didn't know how to say no to me and my brothers when it came to tenseling the tree. And there, underneath the tree, were these gifts wrapped all in the same wrapping paper for all three of the kids. And there I would gather and I'd get my gift and I would sit there and I'd find the one, right, that had your name on it. And I would sit there and I was ready to open the gift. But we had a family rule. And our family rule was that you couldn't open the gift 
until everyone was present. I was first one up. I would sit there. I'd say to my mom, can I go get my brothers up? No. Well, will you go get them up? Anticipating, waiting for that moment when my brothers would descend and the madness would begin and we'd tear into our gifts. And for 20 minutes, it was wonderful. And then we realized that we got all the things that we didn't ask for. No, I'm just, <laughs> just kidding. No, there were always things that I circled in the Sears catalog that I was hoping were gonna be wrapped under that tree and available for me. But that moment, that electric moment when you're waiting to open that gift that's sitting in your lap. What are you waiting for? Is there something in your life that you're waiting to happen? You know, waiting comes in different shapes and sizes. Sometimes, waiting is very positive, and it leaves us with a deep sense of joy. Positive, like when we're waiting for that end of the year bonus to drop into our checking account. We're waiting for that, right? Or maybe you're waiting for the arrival of a child. Get the crib all built, the nursery's all prepared, and you're waiting for the moment to bring the child into that place that was made for that child. That's positive waiting in it fills us with great joy as we anticipate that moment. Now, some waiting, admittedly, is kind of neutral. We're waiting for a parking spot in a parking lot, which reminds me, by the way, that between Christmas, or sorry, between Thanksgiving and Christmas, the average United States shopper spends about one hour looking for a parking spot. Neutral waiting or maybe for a light to change from red to green, or maybe for the water at the faucet to turn from cold to hot. It's neutral. But that's not all waiting. Some waiting is hard. Some waiting comes with a sense of dread. Maybe waiting for the news of a recent biopsy and to get the prognosis moving forward. Or maybe you're waiting for that report from the boss and you know what's coming. A change is coming. Or maybe on the other end of life, maybe it's waiting for the news that a family loved one has passed. That kind of waiting has a different atmosphere entirely. What are you waiting for? You know, we spend a lot of time waiting. We wait at restaurants and stoplights. We wait for our grades to be put into the grade book. We wait. We're not the only people that wait. In fact, waiting is part of being a human. If you go back into the Old Testament, you find a group of people 
called the Israelites. Now that's a group of people that knew how to wait. In fact, God did something. He kind of hammered into them the idea of waiting, expecting, longing, yearning. In fact, much of the Old Testament deals with this very idea. In fact, if we were to parachute into the Old Testament, what we'd find is a group of people that had essentially a gift on their lap, wrapped but unopened. If you have your Bibles, what we're gonna do tonight and today is just to kind of work through some Bible passages that talk about this waiting. Now, where did waiting begin? Well, waiting began where all things begin in the book of Genesis. Do you remember the opening of the book of Genesis? It was in the video. The book of Genesis opens with God creating, and it's very good. But then there's man and there's woman, and they're in the garden, and God set out some boundaries for those two, and they were then tempted by the serpent, and they decided to live life outside of God's boundaries. As a result of that, God initiated a curse. Now, the first curse he gave to the serpent, then he gave one to Eve and then one to Adam. The one he gave to the serpent who had tempted them had this particular verse. This is in Genesis chapter three, verse 15. It says this, God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Interesting. There in the very opening chapters of Genesis, God initiates a redemptive plan for his people. But it's not gonna come instantly. They're gonna have to wait for it. Time is going to pass, but when the time is right, a seed is going to appear, and when the seed appears, guess what's going to happen? There's going to be restoration, and the people began to wait, longing, anticipating the next birth. Maybe that's the seed, or the next birth. Maybe that's the one, and time passes, and there's a flood and there's the famed Tower of Babel, and there's still no seed. Then about 2,000 years before Christ, a refugee, an old man named Abram, is traveling along, and God calls him out and says, you know what? You're going to be the one. In Genesis chapter 12, God says to Abram that there's going to be a new day, and he says, I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. And then a few chapters later, it says this, as the waiting continues, God speaks to Abraham these words, I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants, and the word is seed there. Sound familiar? 
and after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. There's that word seed again. It's as if God is renewing the promise. He says, keep on waiting. Keep the gift unopened. But it would seem at every turn there would be obstacles to the promise. Barren women, wars, family betrayal, immigration to Egypt. Could the promised child actually come from that dysfunctional family? Hmm. Well, that's 200 or 2,000 years before Christ, but the waiting continues and continues. And now God is speaking to David. He has been a warrior turned, a shepherd turned warrior turned king. And King David has brought peace to the land and he's established his own throne. And he says, you know what? I got an idea. I'm gonna build a temple to God in honor of the God that I serve. And as he's saying this and he's, as he's dreaming this up, God says, that's not what's gonna happen now a thousand years before Christ. There is this thread of waiting that's happening in the Old Testament. And now to King David, God says these words. 2 Samuel chapter seven, verse 12. When your days are over, King David, and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up an offspring, a seed, it's the exact same word, to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. So the son of Eve that's gonna restore the land is gonna descend through Abraham, and then he's gonna come through the line of King David. This seed is also going to be a king. Well, David had many descendants. Which one? Which one? As we wait, how are we going to know when this seed is the one that's going to be anointed? The one who's going to restore all that God wants for his people. How do we know if we could only know the place? <coughs> we only knew the location where the seed was going to be born. Micah chapter five, verse two. <coughs> Excuse me. The waiting continues and continues. And now we are told where the seed was gonna be born. But you, Bethlehem and Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Do you remember when the wise men come to see and find Jesus and they go to Jerusalem and there's this parade around their arrival and they go to Herod who's king. King Herod who, by the way, purchased from Rome the title king of the Jews. And these wise men show up and they say, we're here looking for the one born king of the Jews. And King Herod goes to the teachers of the law and the leaders of the Jews 
And he says, where is this person going to be born? And they immediately, without hesitation, say, it's in Bethlehem. We know that because of Micah chapter five, verse two. Micah chapter five, verse two. Micah's 700 years before Jesus. There's a seed coming and they're waiting. And that seed is coming through the town of Bethlehem. But there are lots of babies born in Bethlehem. How can we know the seed? The waiting continues yet again. Isaiah chapter seven, verse 14. We discover which woman will bear the seed. <coughs> Excuse me. Isaiah chapter seven, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and we'll call him Emmanuel. Hmm. There is, friends, a swelling crescendo across the Old Testament of people waiting, waiting for a seed. It's as if the whole nation has been given an unopened gift. They're waiting for the time when they have permission to open the gift, when it would be revealed who would be the one. And this speaks nothing of the fact that their whole system and identity as a people was wrapped around this waiting. Moses takes the people out of uh, Egypt, they wander around and they start this sacrificial system to teach them that they need a savior. Their festivals are all built around the idea that a Messiah, an anointed one, is coming. Their furniture in the temple and the tabernacle is symbolic for this coming one. Read the Psalms. Their songs, their, their hymns are all about the coming, the longing, their waiting, their prayers are about waiting. They're expecting everything about their culture was about waiting for the coming seed. Now that might be underneath the surface, but well, here's what's on top of the surface. On top of the surface is enslaved immigrants in Egypt, the people of Israel. They leave that, they wander around in the desert for 40 years. They're oppressed by other people and there are wars and famine and conflict. Friendships are lost. There's trial after trial. So while all this waiting is happening, so is hardship. Can I suggest that here's what's happening in the people of Israel? That what is really happening is the waiting, the waiting is transforming their ability to endure hardship. And what's happening through the Old Testament is God has given his people a sense of expectancy that's giving them resilience and peace and perseverance. And in all of that, God is saying, 
Look to me. Look to me. See, to be a Jew was to be a waiting Jew. Yearning and anticipating. You can't separate waiting from an Old Testament Jew. You know, it'd be kind of like trying to separate in the United States, liberty out of the United States. Like if you were to take liberty out of the United States, you know what you'd have? Something different than the United States. You have to give it a new name. It's not the United States anymore if you don't want to talk about liberty or democracy. Well, you can't talk about Israel without talking about waiting for the coming anointed one. So you come to the end of the Old Testament. The book of Malachi speaks about this coming anointed one, the seed. And then there's 400 years of silence. The people of God are oppressed. Oppressed by the Greeks, Alexander the Great. Oppressed by the Romans. And the Romans, they brought a measure of peace. But for the Jew, everything they did was under the watchful eye of the Roman centurion. The Roman tax law exploited the people. Families were unable to thrive. They felt like they were strangers in their own homeland. And there was no insurrection in Rome. The Israelites were not going to overcome Roman sword. Rome had instruments of war. They were able to conquer the entire known world at at that moment. And here were the people of God in the midst of all of that waiting. Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter one says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. Notice now the line, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And verse 16 continues, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. The gift was opened. Unless you think I'm overstating my point, Galatians chapter three, the apostle Paul writes to Galatians and he says, I wanna make this very clear to you about the seed. He writes these words, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say and to seeds, plural, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. The entire Old Testament is like an unopened gift waiting 
for the Messiah to arrive. And the book of Matthew opens declaring that Jesus has arrived. The Gospel of John in the first chapter, when Andrew encounters Jesus, he goes to his brother Simon Peter and he says, we have found the Messiah. A few verses later, Philip meets Jesus and he runs to Nathanael and he says, we have found the one that Moses wrote about and that the prophets wrote about. We have found him. He is Jesus of Nazareth. There is pulsating through the Old Testament a longing for the arrival of the coming seed. And Jesus came. You say, so what? I don't, I don't live in the Old Testament. And so what? Big deal. Jesus has come. I got it. Christmas, got it. My friends, this dynamic, confident waiting has a name. This confident waiting has a name. It is hope. For all of Israel's foibles, for all of her failures, Hope in God's promise is what gave them peace and perseverance and patience and resilience. When hope is present, we can endure. You say, I'm not so certain about that. But hope is what steadies us. Hope is what moves us through the hardships Hope is what pierces the darkness. Hope is what overcomes the despairing world. It's hope. Hope is tomorrow's reality transforming today's living. Hope is tomorrow's reality transforming today's living. You say, that sounds foolish, but it's not. You and I live this all the time on a weekly basis. It's called Friday. You know what I'm talking about. You work the same hours on Friday that you work on Monday. You have the same responsibilities on Friday that you have on Monday. You have the same annoying coworkers on Friday that you have on Monday, but Friday is different than Monday. And here's why, because Friday is the day before Saturday. See, Saturday somehow has a way to slip into our attitude and perspective on Friday. And it changes the way we work. It changes the way we interact. Friday can be a hard day, but it's still Friday. Same thing occurs on the day before a long vacation. or the day before Christmas break. See, for Christians, all of life is the day before. For Christians, life is an unopened gift sitting on our lap waiting for discovery. 
the Apostle Paul on several occasions talks about the fact that we still, though Jesus has come the first time, we still eagerly await for Jesus to come back. He says this in the book of Romans chapter eight, verse 18. I consider our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Let me say that again. I consider our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. This is revolutionary perspective. Yes, we are suffering, but it's not worth comparing to what's coming. Yes, it's Friday, but Saturday is the next day. Here's what that means. It means that every trial for Christians ends with a comma and not a period. Every trial for Christians ends with a comma, not a period. And so I say with the last prayer of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22, verse 20, come. Come, Lord Jesus. You know, the older I get, the more that prayer means to me. The older I get, the more I live with longing, yearning, waiting, expecting, hoping for Jesus to come and to right some wrongs, and to bring justice and to restore righteousness on earth. Christians, here's your, what's inside your box. Revelation chapter 21, verse four. Jesus will come back. Here's what's in your box, Christian. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, and no more pain. For the old order of things has passed away. What is overwhelming you today? Something that's stealing your mind space, something that's robbing you of joy, something that feels like a dark cloud over your future, maybe a family crisis, maybe a personal brokenness, maybe a health concern, maybe an uncertain future, whatever that heaviness is, and let's not deny that reality. Let's just add the additional reality of what's inside the Christian box. And maybe when we realize that our tomorrow is better than our today, no matter what your today looks like, your tomorrow is better than your today, Christian. We will complain less and thank God more. What would happen if from this room a throng of people permeated Rochester bearing hope. Not asking us to be loud, I'm not asking us to be obnoxious, of course, but to be hope-filled, to live like there is an unopened gift with our name on it, on our lap. To be people who believe something better awaits us. One of my favorite Christmas hymns is O Holy Night. And I've asked your pastor, Daryl, to come and sing it a cappella tonight. 
Sometimes I don't know where the words come from that I say up front. I just want you to know that's not in my notes. Are you willing to do that, Pastor? No, okay, move on, right? Oh, holy night. Listen to the words. They capture the profound truth that we're sharing here today. Oh, holy night, long lay the world in sin and error pining. The crushing weight of sin creating a longing in the hearts of people. Till he appears and the soul felt its worth, Jesus shows up in our mess. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. And the world is indeed weary, friends. We know that well enough. But if the weary world could meet the thrill of hope, there would be rejoicing. Maybe we are the messengers of the thrill of hope to a weary world. For yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Something new has arrived in Christ. Christian, the call is to live with expectant, confident, transforming hope this Christmas. To live today with the hope of a better tomorrow. And to know that someday Christ will come and reopen the gift for us. Will you pray with me? God, thank you that there is hope in Christ. Now, wherever you're at, whatever you're dealing with, today. May you, friend here in the auditorium or watching online, may you lay that burden down afresh and live each day with a sense of anticipation for a better tomorrow. We are always living the day before. God, would you give us hope that transforms the way we live, the way we interact with our world. May we be messengers of the thrill of hope to a weary world. And Lord, may we, as we bear that message and that hope, may our eyes be fixed on Jesus who came and is coming. Again, thank you. In your good name we pray.